this is Trinity Sunday. As we think about this uh, topic, sort of transition here, what is the greatest blessing in the Christian life? You can shout it out. What's the greatest blessing in the Christian life? You got to pick one, only one. Grace. Good. What else? Love, salvation, the greatest blessing in the Christian life. Christ. Jesus' blood. Good. What else? What? The Holy Spirit. You, you don't get to, I shouldn't have even called on you. You live with me, so you probably heard this sermon. Poor Laura has put up with me for so long. It's interesting when we think about the greatest blessing of the Christian life. I, I think that is probably a difficult answer, and there's, there's no, or a difficult question, and there is probably no wrong answer to that question. Um, I probably would have said something like the Holy Spirit, or I might say something like grace, or I might say something like forgiveness, because I sure need a whole lot of that. Um, the kind of life I would have lived if it wasn't for Jesus, the kind of brokenness that I would have if it wasn't for his healing and presence. So you could talk about all of these different things, and they're all fantastic, and they're all, as Paul pointed out, awesome, all of them. And yet all of them take their root from, I think, what is probably the greatest but often overlooked blessing of the Christian life, and that is simply to know who God is. When I talk about Trinity, immediately I sort of, we're, we're sort of like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't sound that exciting. Like, we're going to talk about the nature of God. Is there anything more exciting than that? Like, there were thousands of years that people didn't know who Jesus was, and they didn't know who the Spirit was, and they were in the dark about this great revelation of the nature of deity itself, and you have now been clued into something that people for thousands of years didn't know anything about. That's amazing, and all of, I want to submit to you that all of the other things that we could talk about, grace, salvation, forgiveness, love, all of these things find their grounding in God himself. And so if we want more of all of the grace and love and peace and joy and faithfulness and all of these wonderful blessings, we get more of those as we come nearer to the ground of all of those, which is God himself. And the scriptures bear this out. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 says... Paul is speaking, and, and Paul says, of all of the things that I have done, all of the accolades, all of the uh, great accomplishments that I have, I consider them all to be garbage. All that I have done is garbage compared to this, to know Jesus. To know Jesus. I think it's so powerful that he doesn't say to receive salvation from Jesus. Obviously, that's good and big and awesome, and he talks about it later on. But the first, the first thing he says, all that I have done is garbage compared to this, that I might know God. Jesus says this. He says, and this is eternal life, which is an awfully big blessing. I think we all want that, right? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Do you want eternal life? Yes. 
How do you get eternal life? You get to know God. Because all of, and think about it logically, all of eternity is us trying to wrap our minds around who God is in his glory. If that's what you're going to be doing for all of eternity, if that's what our, our, our hope and our glory and, 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 and all that we're looking forward to is about, you wouldn't want eternity if, if you're not interested in knowing God. If you want eternal life, you have to have a hunger for knowing God, and perhaps that's a criticism and application right now. Do you hunger to know God? Without any other application, without me saying, and so this is how you apply it to your life tomorrow, and this is how Monday is different, or this is how you interact and end up being a better employer or employee or father or mother or daughter or whatever. Just to know God is a grace in and of itself. Um, These verses are like it. Uh, Corinthians 4, God said... God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. And so here he's, he's evoking that Genesis story where, where light is made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The same God who said, let there be light, has spoken into our hearts to enlighten us, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Second Peter 1-2, may grace and peace, how many of you want that? Grace and peace. But where do we find grace and peace? Does it just come sprinkled down? No. It is rooted in something real. It is rooted in the fount of every blessing. And that is a knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord and of the Holy Spirit as we'll speak about uh, later on. So on one hand, I want to prove to you, evoke in you, convince you that to know who God is is the greatest And first of all blessings, and we as believers should pursue it with passion. You should be searching your scriptures, not so that you can get some tidbit of information that will make today bearable, but rather mining it so that you might see unveiled to you the glory of the living God. Because once the glory of the living God is unveiled to you, what else is held back? On the other hand, there is a great danger And not knowing God. And there are many verses we could look at, but I have two here I just wanted to point out. I think that might be actually where Paul was at earlier. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and this strikes home to me, because in uh, the time of Jesus, that's exactly what I would be. (laughs) I would be a Pharisee. And so when I read these, I always say, but Jesus said to Jordan, that's how I read it, you are wrong. There's a marriage joke there somewhere. Because... You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says to the preachers of his day, he says, you have searched the scriptures, you've memorized the scriptures. Some of you here, who you've been in church your whole lives. you search, you've memorized, you've got it all down. You've volunteered at every VBS since 1964, right? You've been here all this time, and yet Jesus could say to you, you don't know me. You don't know me. And if you don't know me, then where's your eternal life? Where's your security? Where's your safety? Where is your walking in the truth? It's not there. Which means something very dangerous because if we are self-deceived about our knowledge of God, we can deceive others. And if we deceive others, how guilty will we be before the living God if we teach them something about God that isn't true? 
1 Corinthians 15, 34. And so here Paul is speaking to the entire church. And he says, some of you have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Now, uh, of course, this is double shame for us. Because we have the computing power of like the universe in our pockets. Bibles and search apps. I was looking at a Greek uh, New Testament in, in Sunday school this morning online. I can just click the button and it brings up the word so I don't even have to remember my Greek vocab, which is so fantastic. Right? I mean, our ability to know the scriptures is unparalleled. Thus, your ability to know God is unprecedented. And how much expenditure of time and energy have you poured into this, the greatest of all graces? Search God. Search for God while he may be found. The scriptures call us to do this. The scriptures call us to destroy arguments and lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. That the the work of the Christian is this, that we are to... um, I lost my power. Uh, The work of the Christian is this is to be faithful unto God and to know him and know him in all ways possible. And so this morning we're going to talk about the Trinity. The Trinity is a word that we use to try to get at what God is. When you see God, every thought that you have about God that you'd ever had previously, any theological construct, any word such as Trinity that we would have will fall to pieces before us. God is not encapsulated by this, but this is us as humans trying to scratch at an understanding of who God is. And the first thing we learn about who God is is that there is but one God. There is a oneness in being, a oneness in substance. We get this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you remember Jesus speaking, when a Pharisee asked him what the greatest commandment is, Jesus answers to love the Lord your God. You remember that passage? That is the second half of this verse. So Jesus, when asked about the greatest commandment, goes right back to this. This is called the Shema. It was the confession of Israel, part of their regular worship service. And they said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is but one God. This is actually part of the reason why I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the, um, uh, the veracity of our faith. Because if you remember ancient Israel and all the people around them, all of the people around them are, are polytheists. They have many gods. They might have one high god, but they had many gods, as uh, you might know from like Disney movies and Greek history and all that sort of thing. Um, but for Israel, this small, insignificant, politically and financially and militarily, largely insignificant in the ancient world, this people came up with this idea, not only is there one God to the exclusion of all others, but there is one God and there are no others. How did this people come up with this first idea? The only answer that I can posit that makes any sense is that God revealed himself to them, And they were so fierce in their preservation of this truth, of the oneness of God's being, that we have this right here, right? Oh man, my whole thing died. I was clicking on it too hard. Well, the, oh, no, now it's working. Turn it back, Ryan. The, the Lord there, all in caps, we have that. As many of you know that that uh, God 
God spoke his name to, to Moses on the mountain, or, or on the mountain as, as he was revealing himself to him. And Moses says, what's, you know, I don't even know your name. How can I go to, your, to my people and, uh, and say, I know who this God, he revealed himself to me when I don't even know your name. And God said, my name is Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word for to exist. I am or I exist is the translation we have. And they were so fierce about preserving that name, not speaking it because it might be taken in vain, that we have this Lord, which is, of course, not the actual name of God. We change it. They changed it in the Hebrew text, and they change it. We have, have continued that in the English text because of our respect for the oneness of God's being. The stories are told that as they were invaded by the Romans, the Romans wanted to know the name of these, these people's God so that they could include Yahweh into their pantheon, which will make it easier to assimilate Israel into Roman culture. The Israelites died by the thousands, not even saying the name of God. Imagine that. Somebody says, what's the name of your God? And you don't want his name to be taken in vain. And so you die instead of tell them his name. You have that kind of faith? That's intense. So I want you to keep in your mind that intensity of preservation and faith about the oneness of the being of God as we go to the next slide. And we see these these other passages that are suddenly then very puzzling these multiple personalities that show up, where Jesus says to these uh, Pharisees, he says, at one point, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a puzzling statement because they look at Jesus and say, well, you don't really look like you're 1,800 years old. I mean, we know what old people look like, and you're like barely above 30. How is this true? But this isn't what led them to crucify Jesus. You have to understand this. To call yourself a Messiah or a Christ is not controversial. It's not controversial in the ancient world. There are all kinds of people running around saying that I'm a Christ or I'm a Messiah and leading up uprisings and rebellions. And and there are all kinds of teachers that, that disagreed with one another fiercely. This doesn't get you crucified. What does get you crucified is saying, I am. Because what is that? Right? Exactly. That is the exist verb. Jesus is applying the name Yahweh to himself. He does it, um, I think it's eight times throughout the Gospel of John. We have in other places in Scripture, uh, throughout the New Testament, here's an example from 1 John, and it is the Spirit here, the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, if you're a King James-only person here this morning. Uh, and it is the, the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit bears witness. Now think about that for a second. I have never had an inanimate object bear witness, Right? Things don't bear witness. People bear witness. Things don't testify. People testify. And what John is saying here is he's saying, you know what I'm saying is true because the Holy Spirit is testifying to you about it. And so it's very puzzling that these two fiercely Jewish people would take and attribute Jesus himself and then the Holy Spirit to something near God. To something near God. And so we have to do something with this. We have other places. If you could go to the next slide for me. Um, In Matthew 28 verse 19. and, And 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. We have several places. I think I found 20 places that were like this in the New Testament. Where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are brought together into one place. 
Jesus is, of course, about to ascend into heaven, and he says uh, here in this passage, um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you are going about teaching people, and then you come to a moment of conversion, you are going to make them a Christian. You are going to baptize them, not in the name of Yahweh alone, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three are brought together. Now remember the fierceness that they defended, the oneness of being of God. And then here we have Jesus attributing all three together in the power of salvation. The same thing we see kind of going on here in 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. The three are brought together. Now this is a very difficult uh, doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. People have a hard time wrapping their minds around it, and some people have a hard time believing in it. And they have a hard time believing in it because we don't have anything quite like it in our human experience. And this creates something of what we call a paradox. A paradox is something that seems to be inconsistent, um, but isn't necessarily inconsistent. And I submit to you this isn't inconsistent, which is important because we have uh, people next door to us who say Jesus is not God. The Holy Spirit is not real in terms of a personality, right? So we are having a dialogue right here over and against people who are living next to us, who are knocking on your doors if you have been so blessed to have been visited by them. I think it's a blessing. No one said, oh yeah, that's, I love that. Um, Being is what something is what something is made out of personality is who that something is and so we can have a being an existing uh, substance but have three distinct personalities without any incoherence or contradiction in fact this is how the scriptures have revealed god to us They have said we have a Father, we have a Son, and we have a Holy Spirit, and yet we have one God. And we have used this phrase, Trinity, to to get our our, our human words around the divine things. Some people might say that's really complicated, and I don't know that that makes any sense. Well, I think that we are talking about God here, aren't we? Aren't we talking about God? If you you understood God, I you're, you're the smartest person ever to live, right? I mean, that, 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 the, the whole concept and notion of God is to say that there is something that is so high and so above and so lofty and so awesome that we couldn't even come close to it. In fact, I love this passage in Ezekiel. Um, it's Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has this vision, and he describes it very vividly. Some of you remember it. There are these wheels and these creatures that have multiple heads and wings, and they have eyes all over themselves. If you can think of a creature that is sort of shaped like a lion and it has the head of a man and it has eyeballs, like opening and closing and looking around all over it, and it is, has these wings that are coming out from it that, and these wheels that spin that have eyes inside of themselves, this great chariot. He's meticulous in his description. And then he says, above this chariot, there was something that was like a throne. And there was light. And there was this, this thing that was kind of like a man. And it was burning brightly. And it was sort of the color of the rainbow. And he concludes all of his description of this chariot and this, this throne scene with this. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Think about that for a second. Such was the appearance, so it kind of looked like, 
of the likeness, it was kind of like the appearance that I just described to you, of the glory, so not even God himself, but the glory, the sort of the, 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 the light, the, the glory of God. In describing God to us, the man who had this vision takes three steps back to say, everything that I've described to you doesn't even come close to who God is. So if we say God is one in being, as the scriptures do, we confess it. And we confess also there are three persons, as the scriptures declare. And these things seem difficult to understand because we don't have anything within our human experience. My simple answer is, well, yes, we're talking about God. And that's incredible. What an immense gift of grace to know this truth about who made you. About who made the stars, about who made the moon, who made the sun, about the one who, who created the molecules that make us up, who preserve us. We sang this song, he holds everything together, even now. God in three persons, blessed trinity. Didn't we sing that as well? Now, let me bring this into some application in how this interaction works. Um, so you go to the next slide for me, Brian. God is... The power and the mystery. This text from Ephesians says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks and to everything and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He directs then us to take our praises and our thanksgivings. We might remember the beginning of the prayer that Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, right? He teaches us to pray directly to the Father. So our prayers and thanksgivings and songs are all going to God. Our, our prayers or requests or petitions, they're all going to God, is going to God directly because God is the ground of power. He is the, the awesomeness of mystery. He is the complete and um, most uh, wonderful thought that we could have. And all of our prayer, when we pray, we begin by directing it towards God the Father, because he is the one from which all of those blessings come. If you go to the next slide. But we don't just pray to the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is the authorizing power that sees those things get done. So we read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Notice that justification, which is us being right before God, sanctification, which is us being made holy before God, all of these things are coming in the name of, by the authority of, through the power of, uh, an ability to complete of Jesus. In fact, in the name of Jesus appears 21 times throughout the New Testament. Acts tells us that we baptize in the name of Jesus. The apostles do miracles in the name of Jesus. We preach in the name of Jesus. Not preaching the name of Jesus, they preach the gospel, but the authority to preach that gospel came from the authority given to them in Jesus Christ. We do everything in the name of Jesus. We give thanks to God and pray to God in the name of Jesus. We believe in the name of Jesus. And throughout 
This is further evidenced as the power of the Trinity as throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, everything is done in the name of Yahweh. But here in the New Testament, now it is all done in the name of Jesus. We have an expanded revelation of who God is in the coming of Jesus Christ so that we might pray to God, but our prayers might be made powerfully effectual because Jesus, who died on the cross, who justified, sanctified, who has brought you into a relationship with him and has a relationship with the Father because he shares the same being or substance of the Father, can say to the Father, this one is ours. This one belongs to us because Jesus has saved us. And so if you think about uh, the way in which prayer works, we pray to God in the name or by the authorizing power of Jesus. And then if you go to the next slide, the Holy Spirit then becomes the activating power, the actual agent that makes it happen, if you will. We have uh, this verse here from Jude, chapter one. Well, there's only one chapter in Jude, but verses nine and 10, which say this. You, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And the next verse, uh, this is from Romans chapter eight. I really like this one because it gets really at the power of the spirit dwelling in the believer, dwelling in you. It says, Uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he searches, and he who searches, this is God, he who searches knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so we pray to God in the name or authorizing power of Jesus, but in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the, 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 the actual electricity that, that carries our, our power to and from God. And so I want to point out two things that the Spirit does as we pray. First, the Spirit, uh, it is the Spirit that flows from God to empower us to do His will. So if you think about it, this is going to be a very poor illustration. <laughs> as I said, when we see God, all of this stuff will seem like hot air if it doesn't already. Think of God as the power station. All of the power rests right there. But it doesn't move. Unless what? Someone turns it on, right? Someone has the authority to go into the power station and knows how to flip it on. And Paul read this, uh, read the verse from Hebrews, that we have a great high priest who has now entered into the holy place. He now stands before God, the scriptures say, to intercede for you. Jesus is interceding for you now. But what takes our prayers to God? What gets them there? The scriptures say the Holy Spirit. That there comes moments in our lives, and perhaps you've been there, maybe you're even there now, where things are as bad as they have ever been, rock bottom. And you don't know what to pray for. You don't know how to pray. You don't know what to say. In fact, there comes a point, maybe you've been here, where the brokenness is so deep that no word could adequately describe your feelings. Has anyone ever been there? If you're a believer, the scriptures say the Spirit of God The third person of the blessed trinity not only hears your prayers, but is dwelling in you. So that every moment of suffering and struggle, 
God feels too. And when you no longer have words to say, God's spirit can communicate your feelings, your groanings. In the same way, in our great moments of victory, when things are going well, when things are just fantastic and and God is moving powerfully, all that has fallen into place in your life has fallen into place by the will of God. And the Spirit of God is leading you through each one of those situations so that the Spirit of God both enjoys all of our triumphs and suffers through all of our anguish. Such is the doctrine of the Trinity. The truth that has been revealed to us about the power and avenue and way in which God works. There is but one God. But God has exists in such a way that he is able to function as three separate personalities. Each one equipped to do something unique and powerful for you. For me, for all of creation. It says that the, the creation in Romans 8 says all of creation itself is groaning as a woman in childbirth. And if you've ever seen a woman in childbirth, groaning doesn't come close to what those noises are. There are moments, right, where just words don't, don't get there. Creation is like in labor, and it's laboring, it's, it's, it's dying, it's waiting to see the sons and daughters of God, that's y'all, revealed for what they are. The glory that was in Christ is to be revealed and transformative in our own lives. And this happens by the Father and by the Son And by the Holy Spirit. So that when we pray and we want to receive and we need to receive answers from God or help for today or comfort for today. We pray in the Holy Spirit in the name and authorizing power of Jesus Christ the Son to God the Father who is the ground of all power. That he might pour out that power in the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit on you. That's incredible. I think sometimes our understanding of God is just too small. We think God is like us. He's not. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And I don't know a whole lot about the personal life and and ministry of Ezekiel, but I know he was a better man than me. And if he had to take three steps back to even get close to describing what God is like, man, I'm 50 Whatever you think about God, I want you to get this in your mind that he is higher and greater and more holy and more awesome and more powerful and more stupendous. Whatever word that you could think to try to get at God, it fails miserably in getting at God. And the doctrine of the Trinity reveals this. And so when we're in dialogue with some that are... um, I guess just to not be nice about it, false teachers uh, who would get us to doubt the power of the Holy Spirit or uh, the uh, divinity of Jesus Christ, who would deny or denounce the Trinity. They do so because their view of God is too small. 
If you talk to a Muslim, a Muslim says that God is awesome and powerful, but he is so far removed from us, all we can do is hope to do enough good in this life so that we don't burn in hell forever and ever. You should read their accounts of hell. They put the Bible to shame. This is their God. And yet revealed in the scriptures is a God of love. In fact, I love Jude, and I kind of want to close with this, with this passage. He says, Beloved, I love that he says that. You, you, find, you find in all of the, uh, in all of the different scriptures, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, the Quran, um, all the different scriptures in, in, the, in the world, very few who say this is the word of God, and fewer still who say this is the word of God, whose author writes, my beloved. God says to you, my beloved. My beloved, build yourselves up. And the most holy, the word holy means unique, set apart, special, so so pristine that you would never do anything dirty or vile or obscene with it. My beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Spirit and keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I love this picture of the Trinity here. How each person of the one being of God uniquely functions in equipping you to live this life all the way through to eternal life. That our prayers might be efficacious and taken to God. That the love of God might be dwelling richly in us, transforming us, shaping us, making us. That the mercy of Jesus Christ we are awaiting because we do not live as people who have no hope, but as people who know the Savior is coming to take us to be with Him. That He is going to restore all things and that we will see God. We will see God face to face. And all of the words that I've spoken, you will say, that was garbage in the face of knowing God. And so every Sunday we end with an invitation, please know God. And if you don't know God this morning, come down front. We'll have an elder down here. I'll be down here. We'll show you as much as we can so that you might know the transforming power of the living God because he doesn't want to leave you as people who have no hope, but he wants to invite you in and bring you in as a son or a daughter into his house that you might pray through the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ and God, your Father, might answer every single one. And that's just one minor, minor application of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is what it is to learn and to know and to search the scriptures concerning the living God. May we do this with every moment of our lives. Let's stand and sing. Like tears.